Because even former directors, if they were around when the relevant pay-as-you-go withholding or super or GST, when those amounts are incurred by the company, and if that person was a director at that time, then they can still be hit with a DPN even after they leave. You'd be covered by your deed of indemnity, even though you've resigned, but that's still something that you carry with. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 341 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. As you know, an Australian Propriety Limited must have one director based in Australia. So, when an overseas business wants to expand into Australia, but their staff on the ground don't want to be directors for various reasons. The obvious one, of course, is DPNs, the possibility of being hit with a director penalty notice. So if their people on the ground in Australia don't want to be directors, then this foreign business needs to find somebody else who's willing to become a director a non-executive director, or as Damien Lehman of Andrea Floyes in Sydney calls it, a resident director. And this role of a resident director is often taken up by an accountant or a lawyer, so worth finding out more. Here's Damien Lehman of Andrea Floyes in Sydney with some insights. it the resident director so you don't call it the non-executive director but it's the resident director because of course it means it is the director that is just there to fulfill the role of being the one director who is resident in australia correct uh, yeah that's right that's usually what people are looking for and i mean in theory uh, a foreign enterprise might look for a bit more they might want someone actually on the ground but usually they'll be doing something specific in their business and they'll already have arrangements, but so it's usually common to just really be there to tick the box for the residential director. So often you'll have a foreign owned enterprise that wants to set up business in Australia. And for various reasons, it's most efficient sometimes to set up a company that's already in Australia, often a wholly owned Australian subsidiary owned by a foreign parent company. But the issue they have then is that in the Australian corporate law, uh, there needs to be at least one director of that company that is ordinarily resident in Australia. Uh, the reason being that ASIC and the government generally wants to know that there's someone with both feet in Australia that they can go after if the company does the wrong thing. So if there's a foreign enterprise who really hasn't previously had anything to do with Australia in the past and they want to set up that company there in Australia, they will need someone who basically lives in Australia to fill in that role, even if it's just to meet that requirement. So that's something that an accountant or a lawyer or really anyone who's willing to sort of take on that responsibility can do. Like any other director, they will be responsible for obligations of the company to make sure the right things are done and that taxes are paid and all those other things that make directors personally liable for, for things. So it's important that anyone who agrees to be a resident director has documentation in place that they're comfortable that they can keep an eye on the company, such as things like tax lodgements and, and solvency are all properly managed. Otherwise, the, that resident director can find themselves in a lot of trouble that they, they didn't really think that was their role in the first place. 
And the risk is that the corporate veil gets pierced and you are made personally liable through DPN, correct? That's the main risk. That's the main risk. There's also a few others like uh, environmental contamination and I think industrial manslaughter. And there's, there's quite a few different rules that pierce the corporate veil. But we're mostly talking about tax and trading while insolvent. And I think what you do to, to protect your position is you get a deed of indemnity and access. And I assume access is about that you have the right to see the accounts, that you have a right to see the bank accounts, I assume, that you have a right to information to understand what's going on. And then the deed of indemnity, I assume, moves the liability to somebody else. The question is, can you do that? Can you remove your personal liability away from the ATO to somebody else? How does that work? So you've touched on an important point. You can't really remove that liability away. All, all you can do, so you being the director. So if you're a director of an Australian company that has a tax debt, then you're responsible like any other director of a DPN comes in. So all that what a prudent resident director should do is enter what you've said, a deed of access and indemnity, which the indemnity bit is just the parent company and the people involved in the enterprise are agreeing to cover the costs or losses of the resident director. But the resident director still will get the losses first, incur the losses first and then get covered afterwards. So it's not like they can get out of it. They just enter an arrangement to be covered if the bad things happen. So in that sense, the resident director isn't able to escape risk. And that's why they charge a fee usually. And they'll charge a fee based on what the elements of risk are, which will come down to what is the Australian-based business doing. If it's a passive investment company, then the risks in property, let's say, the risks are going to be lower than if it's an active business making products, you know, that could hurt people and the company gets sued and all these sorts of other things. So usually the fee that the resident director will charge will be linked to the element of risk they're taking on because yes. that risk is basically inescapable to some degree. All you can do is that you get basically a claim back to the um, parent company. So let's say there is 1.5 million of unpaid wages or pay-as-you-go withholding. What can pierce the DPN? Um, you know, what can be subject to DPN? I understand it's pay-as-you-go withholding, unpaid pay-as-you-go withholding, correct? That's right, and superannuation. Unpaid super, GST, and I assume also unpaid wages, correct, or not? Not unpaid wages, just the pay-as-you-go withholding. Pay-as-you-go withholding, super, and GST under a DPN. So let's say the total of that is 1.5 million, then you still have to pay 1.5 million to the ATO. But then thanks to the deed of indemnity and access, you then have a legal right to go against the overseas entity that you have this contract with. Yes. And so that deed you would you should have got signed sort of at the time you're appointed. You you call on the legal rights you have under that deed to be indemnified. Obviously, it breaks down. It can break down a bit in real life if the parent company decides not to honour its agreement. Then you have to sue them and go through a whole process then as well. And the ATO won't really care about that, but that's the best protection that, that you can get. If a lawyer assumes this risk, for example, I assume there's no issue because you don't have to be independent as a director. And you don't have to be independent as a lawyer, correct? You can basically provide legal services to a company of which you're also the director. 
correct? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, the, in your question, the only the relevant thing to think about is the lawyer's obligation to not have a conflict. And I agree. I, in most cases, I can't see a situation where if a lawyer is acting as the resident director, that, that a conflict would arise. So I, I think that should be a problem, but uh, sorry, that should not be a problem. But obviously there's cases where it could suddenly become a problem later on. If there's, you know, a dispute between the director and the company, then that the law firm that the director happens to be a part of, they, they really would have to get separate advice then, I would say. Who usually acts as these resident directors? Is it usually lawyers or have you also seen a lot of accountants or tax agents or is it a completely different profession that usually acts as resident directors? It is. Uh, I've seen lawyers and accountants do it. Uh, and I think that's the main group of people who do it. The, the people know enough usually that there's risks of being a director. So most people, I think, are scared off of offering those services, uh, uh, except for those people who kind of know enough about how to limit their risk, such as this, you know, indemnity arrangement that you would agree to. The other reason would be uh, usually lawyers or accountants are the first point of contact that these foreign enterprises have with Australia. Because the first question isn't, do I need a resident director? It's, what do I need to do to set up in Australia? And that advice leads to, well, for certain reasons, you don't want a permanent establishment or a branch office. You might want to set up a company here. We can help you set that up. You need an ABN, a tax file number, pay-as-you-go withholding registration, all the rest. And because they're already dealing with those professionals already, uh, that's usually leads to those same people taking on the role as resident director. And the, You know, they're comfortable with that too because they know those Australian professionals who are handling things, you know, and, and for we do this sort of work as well. And then, of course, the clients know that, that we're already familiar with their structure, how they operate, what they do, and they don't need to explain everything to a new person all over again. So that can be. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Blech. And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Helpful too. And so when you do act as a resident director, how often do you check the um, accounts? You know, how, how closely do you have your eye on this company? Do you have access to their ATO account, for example, or do you have access to their accounting software? How closely do you watch? I'd probably speak generally about what I think is best, which is, is it really comes down to what the actual activities of this company are, what they're doing, what their assets are. Obviously, at the start, when someone agrees to be a resident director, they should do their own due diligence and get a copy of financials from the parent company and get an understanding of what the overall structure is and what the activities are. But if it's a, you know, just a, a passive company that's doing property investments in, in Queensland or something like that, has a few apartments, then, uh, you know, maybe you'd be satisfied by just seeing their quarterly accounts, copy of their bank statements, ATO filings, You know, and, mm. and obviously, you know, knowing the accountant and having access to them all the way to you want full on access to the portal and what's going on. If they're a multi-million dollar, you know, complicated company doing lots of different things, uh, then you'd want further further access, basically. It, 
It depends on the size and the type of industry. It's, it's, that's right. And it's all, it's part of the same risk management calculation. And, uh, it, and it's obviously part of when the, the resident director is talking to the foreign enterprise, what they agree to. You know, obviously it's best for the director to have access to everything and to even insist on maintaining that they have to sign off on all major decisions and everything else. But that's something that's worked out. Often larger companies that are doing a lot of different things, the enterprise might want uh, the resident director to give authority, blanket authority to certain people to make decisions about, you know, HR, where the office is, all this sort of stuff. So the resident director doesn't need to actually sign off on all these sorts of things. But basically, it's a negotiation and something that's agreed case by case, I would say. What can you do if it doesn't work out? So, and not just doesn't work out, but you have serious concerns about your liability. Let's say you're a resident director and you realize that the company hasn't paid its best for the last two quarters, income tax, company income tax is outstanding. You start getting really nervous about your role in this. How can you get out? Because if you get out, nobody else will assume this role, given the state of affairs. And if you get out, then the company doesn't have any resident director. And that's basically what's also happening with phoenixing companies, correct? Because the director basically disappears and then the company is there alone without a director and all these debts to the ATO, correct? That's right. So the company will usually have other directors as well. They'll have the one resident director and they might have one or two or even more other directors who are based in other countries. So they won't have no directors, but you're right. If they won't have a resident director if, if that person gets off and resigns, but they have that right to resign. And then it's up for the company to find a new resident director uh, to meet the requirement to have that. So that means when you become a resident or when you agree to act as a resident director, one of the things you need to do is you need to insist that there will be other directors, that you're not the only one. And so hence you can resign if you find it's getting too hot. That's right. And I think it's um, it's something that they'll insist on anyway, because if there's only the one director who's the resident director, then they're the ones who really have full control of the company. So it's it's usually the case, in my experience, there'll be two other foreign directors. So whatever happens, multiple people need to sign each resolution anyway. But your point about DPNs is important still, because even former directors, if they were around when the relevant you know, pay-as-you-go withholding or super or GST, when those amounts are incurred by the company, and if that person was a director at that time, then they can still be hit with a DPN even after they leave. You'd be covered by your deed of indemnity, even though the time, even though you've resigned, but that's still something that you carry with you. Do you sometimes do it that you insist or even put it into the deed that you insist that basically the estimated Best liability for the next quarter is already paid to the ATO as a prepayment at the start of the quarter, or is that too paranoia? So, for example, if the best liability each quarter is, let's say, $25,000 for the company, that you want those $25,000 just roughly as a prepayment already paid at the start of the quarter, that's too paranoia and too complicated and being difficult, isn't it? Or have you seen that? I haven't seen it. I, the, most of the arrangements I've been involved in are companies that are set up brand new in Australia. So they've been established and they don't have any existing tax, tax debts yet. There have been a few times where a resident director has left and they've, they've asked us to come on. Usually those just haven't gone ahead for whatever reason. 
but obviously, if you're being asked in that situation, you want to know, well, why has the person left? What's, what's been going on? And you, I wouldn't necessarily ask for that sort of prepayment you've mentioned, but you'd want to see a copy of the, you know, the tax portal and the bank statements and everything beforehand, you know, and, and if everything's paid up and there sort of isn't any other reason to be concerned, then then you might be fine to sign on as a, as a resident director. Again, all comes down to your personal appetite for risk, I suppose, and but balanced by the amount that you want to charge for that service. I mean, that's that's why the services can be costly because there's always that element of, of risk, which although the indemnity is there in the deed, you're relying on the parent company and whoever else is giving you the indemnity to still be around to honour it, to have the assets and everything to, you know, to cover your costs. Yeah, because in the end, the resident director need, needs to be a person, so they can't hide behind their company, for example. They're personally liable. And you can't assign those personal obligations, just like, you know, just like any other tax liability, any liability, you can't give that liability to someone else. And DPNs and other laws that look through the corporate veil are just the same. They can't actually be pushed on to other people, even if you're almost just a directory name only. Um, so the, the best you can do is be indemnified, which is you have to suffer a loss usually and then require the person indemnifying you to cover it. But you've already gone through that process where you've got a DPN then. So you're mm. already a little bit, you know, in the fire that you're dealing with. Yes, and if the uh, indemnity is with an entity overseas, it is very, very costly to basically push this through in the international court system or to push it through the court system in the other country because you would have to go to the other country to get to the assets of that company. Potentially. Yeah, you would enforce the deed in Australia. You'd make sure the deed is legally based in Australia, but you're right, you know, and, and it comes down to how much do you want to do due diligence into this enterprise that yes. is setting up, you know, so. Do you know how much you charge for this? Per, and it, I guess it's it's how long is a piece of string, isn't it? Because it completely depends on the risk. It, it does. We sort of have a an like a guide, though. Uh, let me think. I think it's like two hundred or four hundred a month for passive investment companies, and mm -hmm. for like business companies that are actively doing stuff, we'd say fifteen hundred to twenty uh, five hundred per month, plus GST technically. But um, it's it's a broad range because. We, we lock in an actual price, but it depends on, on what the risks are and, you know, who's involved. And, and look, it does come down to what do the people seem like? You know, do they seem on the mm. up and up? Do they seem like they know what they're doing? Or do they look a bit sleazy and... Yeah. Well, and we had one, there's been a few. So we had one recently where it was a Russian enterprise that wanted to set up a cryptocurrency exchange in Australia. Which I don't exactly know what that is, Heidi, but they wanted to set that up in Australia, and uh, they were in a rush around Christmas time to get it done, and it just all seemed a bit kind of too rushed and strange, and we basically put it on hold because we kind of didn't want to make a, a hurried decision around Christmas when we were under the pump as well to agree to do all this stuff, and they they still are chasing us to do it, but but we haven't decided if we will yet because. Well, I probably don't need to explain. You got, you know, Russia, you got crypto, you got <laughs> financial services, perhaps. Are they properly licensed? How does this work? You know. If you were a resident director, it would not be Andre of lawyers. It would be Damien Lehman. You know, it would be down to you personally. 
Do you have seen accountants or lawyers who offer this service who then actually put somebody else's name down there who doesn't have any assets? So, for example, I don't know, their 18-year-old son or their old grandmother or somebody who doesn't have any assets because, yeah, because that's really the only way to mitigate the risk. And there is no, you don't have to be registered in any way. All you have to be is 18 and living in Australia and being legally in Australia. I haven't seen exactly what you're talking about, but I've, I know of a accounting firm that offer the service but don't, don't have anyone in the firm that goes on. They know some guy who goes on as a director for them. But apparently, well, they say he's lazy. He's very slow to get stuff signed and everything else. So they don't like to use him. That's going to be the risk. If you have, you know, homeless person or whatever, 18-year-old son of someone, you, you need them to turn up and go to the bank from time to time and sign stuff. Because, I mean, like, so when, when, when we do it, we have to sign off on the tax return. You know, we have, to, we have to look at stuff. We have to figure out, do we need to file the annual accounts with ASIC or not? Are we a reporting entity? you know, that needs to file the accounts with ASIC. Do they need to get audited? So there's enough stuff that the resident director gets asked to sign off on. And, you know, I suppose if you find the right person who's just going to sign everything all the time and they don't care, there's probably always going to be a trade-off between how good they are at filling that role, as nominal as the role might be, versus how cheap they are, basically. As I say, said on the phone earlier, we, we've been offering the service for a long time and we've had many inquiries about it, but very few seem to come through. And I don't know whether it's what we charge or whether there's, some, yeah, whether there's some group of people out there who just do it, you know, some small firm that maybe just does it for everyone and churns them out. I don't know. But best guess is there's probably a lot of people who are interested in moving to Australia, setting up in Australia, but it becomes all a bit too hard because of how regulated Australia and the tax law is. Welcome back. So if you agree to become a non-executive resident director, make sure that the entity has its management and directors insured and keep a close eye on the entity to make sure they pay their tax debt and lodge on time and also, very important, comply with fair work regulations. That's very important. That's another big area where DPNs are commonly issued and also environment. So make sure the Australian entity you are a non-executive resident director of, make sure they are a good corporate citizen. In the next episode, episode 342, Deborah Anderson, a board member of the TPB, the Australian Tax Practitioner Board, it's a bit of a tongue twister, will answer a list of questions for you. Can you run several brands under one registration or several registrations under one brand? Do you have to disclose that you use overseas staff? And what about supervision and control when your staff works remotely? These are just some of the questions Deborah Anderson of the TPB will discuss with you in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.